much as you can, okay? For those of you that are uh, worshiping with us this morning and those perhaps that have tuned in via the internet to watch or to listen, we welcome you along with our congregation. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We've moved from hope in the gospel and holiness in the gospel now to a passage. In fact, this is a pivotal passage. Uh, we'll focus on, in fact, it runs to, through uh, chapter 3, but we're looking this morning at, uh, actually, verse 4 will be as far as we get this morning, if we get through that. But we're looking at honoring the cornerstone, who, of course, is Jesus Christ, and his gospel. So last Sunday we began and we had sort of a, always with me is a lengthy introduction. So this morning we're going to uh, focus on primarily verse 4, but I want to read down through verse 10. We find these words. Peter writing, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, as being built up in a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beautiful passage of scripture, a, a kaleidoscope, if you will, of privilege, and we'll look at that and examine that this morning. Let's go to the Lord Jesus in prayer. Father, bless, I pray, the word, single agency in this life that you've promised to bless. It is the extent of who you are. Jesus is the living word. We worship you this morning as the living word. God the Son who is the chief cornerstone. And so we pray that you would reveal yourself by the Spirit as that cornerstone this morning and that those that are here would be uh, moved from Jesus being a stumbling block to Jesus being the foundation of their faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson uh, is, I've read a number of books uh, by him. Vance and I have used a couple of his books in our devotions on Friday morning. Uh, Ferguson is about my age. He and uh, Alistair Begg are both Scottish. They, they knew each other in Scotland, and they um, ministered or uh, Alistair Begg still ministers here in America, in Cleveland. Uh, Dr. Ferguson retired a number of years ago. He was raised in 1950s Scotland. 
and uh, some of the strongest uh, reformists back uh, 500 years ago came out of Scotland, John Knox and, and others. And um, he went to a public school and there learned about the Bible in a public school in Scotland, very similar to what <coughs> occurred here in America many, many years ago. He learned nighttime prayers from parents who were not believers. And he attended church for a number of years before being converted because he was immersed in a Christian culture at that time. He was converted in his late teens, uh, went to seminary, and in the years since, Ferguson has written more than 50 books. He has spoken at innumerable conferences across America and around the world. And he has taught in a number of seminaries. He retired from the pastorate in Columbia Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina, one of the largest uh, Presbyterian churches in America. And he returned to Aberdeen, Scotland. Uh, he was not born in Aberdeen, but he went to Aberdeen because he knew a young man that had uh, established a church in Aberdeen a number of years ago. Aberdeen, Scotland is the most secular city in the United Kingdom. And so this young pastor friend of his invited him to come and to help him in the ministry. Now, Dr. Ferguson could have gone anywhere he wanted to go. He could have preached around the world. He's already done that a number of times. He could have pastored again if he uh, elected to do that, but he didn't. He went to this small church in Aberdeen, Scotland, of about 200 people. And every Sunday night, Dr. Ferguson teaches these people. He put himself aside, and he focused on this small local church. He is using the spiritual gifts that God has given him to extend his privilege of knowing Christ and the benefits of knowing Christ to a group of privileged believers in Aberdeen. Peter does a similar thing here in verses 4 through, we read through 10, but actually 4 through 12, in this passage of scripture. He is defining for us a number of the privileges in the community of born-again folk. He focuses on our identity, and in verse 4, he says, coming to him. All of us that are born again at one time, came to Jesus. We'll speak to that as we move through the message this morning. I closed last Sunday's message with this slide. And so we introduce this message this morning with this very slide. If you were asked, how would you define yourself? And we talked about elevator speeches and how there are 
numerous individuals that think that if, if you're on an elevator and somebody asks you what you do, you take five minutes of their precious life and you tell them all about me, all about yourself. Well, we're not seeing an elevator speech in verses 4 through 10. In the West, since we're a culture of self-definition, folk typically begin with I am and then they go ahead and list all manner of things. This is my education, this is my craft, this is what I do, this is, this is my uh, position in life, and so forth. If we move into other cultures, we will find that they often begin with the phrase we, rather than I. And typically they will define their family, they will perhaps define their skills or their craft, because their place in culture is more of a community than even in America. We have become a nation, and in some sad cases, churches that focus on hyper-individualism. Now Peter is moving from, uh, from the character of Christ in these verses here to our identity as believers. And the way he does that is he stresses we are coming to him. Our identity then begins with these questions. We're talking about believers this morning. Those that know Jesus as Savior. Who is my God? Can you answer that question? Whom do I trust? Can you answer that question? And what is my community? In other words, can we set, as Dr. Ferguson has done, can we set self aside and speak to community? Now the question, whose am I, is more important than who am I? I'll say that again. The question, whose am I, is more important than who am I? And these verses, Peter has stressed that our faith alone in Christ alone defines us. Because he is his father's foundation or his cornerstone. We see that and that's mentioned a number of times in this passage. We are living stones. And we won't approach that this morning, what, what the metaphor that he's talking about, but we will uh, perhaps next Sunday. Peter says we are chosen by him. We come to him because we're chosen by him as a royal priesthood. We are, he says, a holy nation. We've preached extensively, a latter part of chapter 1, on being holy. We are a race of believers from the myriad of races on earth. We are, Peter says, his own special people. And this causes a lot of individuals especially unsaved folk, to have heartburn. 
We are his own special people. Next slide, if you would. So, from the first verse of chapter 1 through verse 12 of chapter 2, it opens and it closes by describing our identity. Peter says we are his elect because, and he says this in verse 2, because we are pilgrims in the world. We are no longer at home in this culture. We've just looked at that in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 2. We are called evildoers evil in verse 12. Look at verse 12, if you would. Having your con conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers. When was the last time somebody spoke to you as being an evildoer? Now, you, we may be moral individuals, but Peter says, and writing to the pilgrims, he says, they're going to be those that stress that you're an evildoer. That they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And, Peter says, turn over to chapter 4. And verse 16. Well, look, look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer. There's the word used again. We'll explain that later or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this manner. We suffer. That is our identity in Christ. He suffered. We suffer. Now, verses 4 through 12 of chapter 2 is a pivotal passage. And by that it means when we arrive at, at uh, these verses, and I remind you as I have hundreds of times before, there are no chapter and verse divisions in the original manuscripts. So the epistle was read in, in its entirety and uh, then uh, reiterated time and again to the churches that it was read to. So you and I are blessed to have, although they're not inspired, chapter and verse divisions are not inspired, they were given for clarity, and they do help sometimes. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they confuse. But here's a, uh, here's a, uh, a particular phrase that, uh, or pr a particular separation that does help. And it's p Peter is pivoting from what he has taught us in the first 21 verses where he establishes of the theological foundation for the entire epistle. So as we go through the five chapters in 1 Peter, we're going to be referring quite a bit back to these first 21 verses. That's the theological foundation. And Peter has defined this for us. In verse 2, he says God's holy. And he makes his elect holy judicially, by covering our sins with the blood of God the Son. Phrase often used is justification. So we are taught about that in verses 15 through 19 of chapter 1. That's one of those theological foundations. He will mention it time and again as we go through the first five, five chapters. Oh, 
the epistle, rather. So God is holy. Secondly, the Holy Spirit makes the church, and the church in 1 Peter, in fact, the church in the New Testament, is a community. There is no church of one. The church is two or three or more, not one. So church is a community, and the Holy Spirit makes this community holy from a moral standpoint through sanctification. That likewise is mentioned in verse 2. In verse 22, if you drop down, and we've looked at that, a number of times. You've purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Once we have purified our souls by obeying the truth, the result of obeying the truth is love. We have a sincere love for others, and he's speaking here of community. Are we to love lost people? Absolutely. But that's not what Peter, that's not who Peter is addressing. He is addressing the community of the church. Sincere love for others. And this love is to run deeply from pure hearts, from holy hearts. So this is what Peter is is, uh, stressing theologically in the first 21 verses. Next slide, if you would. In chapter 2, Peter warns about the sinful vices that will destroy the community founded by the Holy Spirit. And verse 1 says, You lay aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. So he identifies this. There cannot be a pure heart or holy community if folks harbor unconfessed, unrepentant sin in their souls. And that's why he lists this. He will do this time and time again, just as the Apostle Paul does. This is the teaching of the Spirit of God to a community of believers. In verses 4 through 10, which we're focused on uh, this morning, Peter pivots to the Christian community of the church. And he describes the ecclesiastical identity of the Flat Creek community. This was written to you and I. Yeah, written to pilgrim sojourners 2,000 years ago, but written to you and I. It is as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. doesn't change. It will be, if the Lord tarries, as relevant 2,000 years from now as it is today. Now, Paul identifies who we are in a way that is antithetical to our individualism. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter 4. And again, I stress that Paul was writing, this This is the most um, corrupt church in the New Testament, Church of Christ. So it's difficult to, to, every once in a while you'll 
be on a trip and you'll see the Corinth Baptist Church or the Corinth Community Church or something. And I'm thinking to myself, who in the world named this church? You, we do not want to be the Corinthian church. We want to emulate the Ephesian church or the Philippian church or the Colossian church or all the churches in the diaspora that Peter is right. We do not want to be the Corinthian church. And here's why. Let's see what Paul said. Verse 8. You are already full. You're already arrogant. You're already rich. And they were. You've reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think, this is Paul's identity. This is our identity. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have made, been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Peter alluded to this in verses um, 10 through 11 of chapter, um, chapter 1. He said, we're fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Now this is sarcasm. Paul's not saying, oh, you're stronger than I am. He's not saying that. He said, because you're already full, because you're already arrogant, this is what you think. And sometimes we do. We think this way. That we've arrived. He says, you're strong, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. To the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed, we are beaten, we are homeless. And we labor working with our own hands, being reviled we bless, being persecuted we endure, being defamed we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the refuge, the offscouring, the dung, the manure of all things until now. That's our identity. That's who Peter's writing to. That's the way the world looks at us. And they look at us this way because the gospel always divides. If we preach the gospel in truth, if it's taught in truth, it divides. It should unite believers, but it will divide unbelievers. And it will always divide forever on this mortal earth. There will be no peace till Jesus comes again. This is why believers are defined by their community, not their individualism. When people speak of Flat Creek, they generally speak of the community of the church. Now, they may call individuals out, but one individual doesn't make up the church. So the testimony of the church is not based on the testimony of one individual. And this community is found, Peter says, coming to Christ. This community is always found in Christ. The living stone as the source of objective truth for salvation. And again, because we are a special people, 
Folks don't like that. Don't want to be part of the special people. I, I want to be part of it, but I, there are things that need to occur in my life. The sin that needs to be confessed, I need to repent, I need to humble myself, I need to become, as Paul said, the off-scouring of the world, and I don't want to do that. So the community is found in the living stone, Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting that as we look at this passage of Scripture, verses 4 through 10, Peter does not introduce the privileges until he has defined the sin. And this is consistent in the writings of the New Testament. Jesus himself taught in a very similar manner. Read the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard where it has been said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, I'm going to call out your sin. Now, he closes chapter 7, and we'll see you later on this morning perhaps, and also in Matthew's Gospel, the middle chapters. Come unto me, all you who labor and, heavy late, and, and are heavy laden. So there's the calling out of sin, and then there's the comfort that comes from calling to him. That's part and parcel of the gospel, and that gospel always divides. So he reminds us in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2, we come to him as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the world that you may, uh, of the word rather, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Now nowhere in this passage does Peter speak of a building, a church building. He speaks of a living community the body of Christ. And this is likewise consistent with the teaching of Paul. This building, beautiful building, a comfortable building that we enjoy as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ is just that. Christ resides within us. We are in Christ because he is in us as believers. Is Christ in you this morning? Next slide, if you would. So let's think a little bit about this, and then I've got uh, a few quotes here from Timothy George. Why did Peter instruct pilgrims in this manner, and why is his teaching pertinent today? It's always a good thing when you're looking at a passage of Scripture to ask that. Now here's the answer to that. Uh, one of the answers to the question is that the teaching of the Word of God is always pertinent. We're in the book of Ezekiel in our Sunday school class. The latter chapters of the book of Ezekiel speaks about a millennial temple. Now, why is that important? Because God wants us to know about this. And if God has given this to us, it's important. It's not boring. It's important. So what Peter is doing here in, in, the, uh, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2 as he's bridging the gap to begin to pivot from speaking of the theological notions to the ones that apply to the community of church, the, the ecclesia, the called out group that Peter is writing to. So this is what is meant as the Bible is the source of objective truth. I'm going to read a couple of quotes here from 
Dr. Timothy George. Now that may, I've quoted from him before, it may not mean anything to you, but Timothy George was one of the very first students at Lynchburg Baptist College. So he's about my age, not nearly as good looking as I am, but he's about my age. And so he, I think, went two years to, to at that time, Lynchburg Baptist College, and then transferred to uh, another school, another seminary. He has now a number of, enough degrees to be a thermometer, okay? Several years ago, 20 or 25 years ago, he founded uh, Beeson Seminary in Alabama. And Beeson Seminary now is one of the seminaries within the Southern Baptist Convention. It's also independent in nature. It's very unique. Well, he's uh, an extremely intelligent man, and he writes this about object about the Bible and why we always come back to the Word. He says, and I quote, Christianity must be seen as, as a historically continuous fellowship. All right? out of the gate, a fellowship in which all enjoy a salvation that was won for them in Palestine on a certain date nearly two millennia ago. Uh, two millennia ago. In other words, there's history to our faith, and we should know it. Don't need to know it all, but we should know some of it. The historical claims of the Christian primary documents, speaking of the Bible, must therefore be acknowledged as true and true not just for me as an individual, but true for all persons everywhere. We've mentioned that a number of times in our preaching. Truth means, admittedly, this is an offensive message for a culture that magnifies local consensus above any notion of objective public truth and that prizes pluralism, in other words, that means all faiths are the same, that prizes pluralism and relativism, which says no faiths are the same, as the reigning orthodoxy of the day. Next slide. He says there is no neutral ground. A lot of controversy now among churches and denominations because of alternative lifestyles and so forth. There is no neutral ground. Uh, you've heard me say that not making a decision is making a decision. No neutral ground. There's no independent platform on which we can stand and decide for or against the Bible. Skepticism about its na is natural to our hearts. And only as God opens our eyes to discern divinity in Scripture do we ever come to trust Him. It will not happen naturally, it will not happen rationally. It must happen by the power of the Spirit of God. That's why Peter says we're coming to him. 
our assurance in its veracity and its truthfulness comes only as the same spirit who inspired the prophets and the apostles enlightens our minds and confirms the truths that have been revealed in these sacred texts. No one is ever saved without that happening. And here's one of the takeaways. Please remember this. Because we are sinners, and everything about man begins with that statement, because we are sinners, we overrate the receptive capacity of fallen human reason. And we diminish the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. As soon as we begin to make a human judgment about divine scriptures, we have been duped by our own sinfulness. And we diminish the inner witness of the Holy Spirit. Now Calvin, many, many years ago in his institutes, wrote this. His words are still relevant today. The testimony of the Spirit is more excellent than all reason. For as God alone is a fit witness of himself in his word, so also the word will not find acceptance in men's hearts before it is sealed by the inward tes testimony of the Spirit. Paul writes about this in the book of Ephesians. The same Spirit, therefore, who has spoken through the mouths of the prophets, and we can add apostles, what we're seeing here this morning, must penetrate our hearts to persuade us that they faithfully proclaimed what they had been divinely commanded. And that's found in the... Um, the first section of the Institutes, which, by the way, is about 2,500 pages, written to the King of France by John Calvin in the explanation of the Christian faith. So don't forget that. Because we are sinners, we overrate the uh, receptive capacity of fallen human reason. Now, God has gifted us in his image with innumerable capabilities. But coming to him naturally ain't one of them. And Peter says we need to come to Jesus as a living stone. Now, that said, next slide. That's why we define ourselves as Peter does from verses 22 of chapter 1 through verse 12 of chapter 2. We are defined by the cornerstone. That is why the community of Flat Creek is focused on the chief cornerstone. Don't focus on me. I am a human agent called of God to preach the word. And I am fallible. 
as the Lord gives me because of the gifts that he has bestowed upon me, the ability to, to study, to preach, and to teach. That is to bring you and I to the chief cornerstone. And that goes for any preacher. It goes for Dr. Ferguson, and I'm sure he'd be one of the first ones to say it. it goes for Alistair Begg. It goes for all of them. Billy Graham, you fill in the blank. All of them. We're always worse sinners than we can ever imagine. And Christ is always a greater Savior than our sin. Leonard Ravenhill is with the Lord. An Australian wrote this a number of years ago. He said the early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecution. Now we're trying to marry the church to prosperity, to personality, and to popularity. And you can do it, but they're not churches. Church of the living God is where the gospel is preached, where Jesus is exalted, where the word of God leads us to an understanding of who God is and where the ordinances, one of which we're going to observe in just a few moments, are observed, that of baptism, believer's baptism, and the Lord's Supper. In these verses, 4 through 10, Peter draws from the Septuagint, there's quotes here that he has, and these quotes are from, as I've mentioned, all the all the Old Testament quotes in, in First and Second Peter are from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. Peter probably, we're not certain of this, but he probably didn't have a very good and good understanding of Hebrew, so he read, and Jesus himself read, the Septuagint, the Old Testament translation. So Peter is presenting here a new people. That's what he says, okay? Notice what he says. Your chosen generation, verse 9, your royal priesthood, a holy nation, uh, own special people, you may proclaim the praises of him and call out of darkness into his marvelous light, these superlatives that he's given to us, that gives and provides to us these privileges. This is who we are. And we are not like this without the cornerstone. Because we come to him. And so we are now new people of God. And we are privileged to possess all the blessings of Israel. But in more and fuller measure. Peter has defined a community that's pure because of the cornerstone and now he defines a community that is privileged because of the cornerstone now let's think about this this morning about privilege for a moment and then we will close what image does privilege bring to you well, we hear that, hear that word a lot today well you're privileged and because you're privileged you don't understand this well maybe maybe not how in the world people can make a judgment as to what I understand, I do not know. But if you were to go to Webster, old Webster, 
And you were to look up the definition there, the English definition would be privilege as a right or benefit enjoyed by a person beyond the advantage of most. So in that way, what we've just read here in these verses, 9 through 11, or 9 through 10 rather, we are indeed beyond the advantage of most because we are in Christ. And that's a good thing. That is because of the finished work of Jesus. I remember when I was a child, and that's been a long time ago. I can remember very little, but I do remember some of it. And one of the things I can remember my mom saying to the three boys is, if you guys, if I give you a job or a task or something and you don't do it, or I tell you to go outside and you don't do it, or whatever it may be, she said, you're going to lose your privileges. I'm going to go and talk to your dad, which was the very last thing we wanted to happen, so that you lose your privileges. And indeed, this did happen sometimes. In fact, it happened quite often. We lost our privileges. Believers cannot lose their privileges. Those of us that are born again in Jesus Christ will not lose the privileges that God has bestowed upon us. That's the difference. Yeah, we may lose privileges in other ways today, but not from Jesus and his movement to save us from our sins. Next slide, close. So, this definition of is that true of you? The definition of privilege, is it true of you? Do you understand this marvelous kaleidoscope of who we, <clears throat> who we are? We start to look at, at priesthood next Sunday morning. Christians belong to a class <coughs> who enjoy special favor and rich privileges in Christ. And one of the reasons that folk reject Christianity is that we believe the Bible teaches an exclusive nature of privileges in Christ alone and folk do not like to be excluded. But we come to him. And Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So have you come to him, the chief cornerstone this morning? Do you know him? If you do, all of those privileges that he's mentioned in this particular uh, passage that begins to teach us about it, he will leave these, this passage and then he'll talk about our, the privilege to live within governments, our privilege to live within a family, our privilege to have spouses, and our privilege to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have that privilege this morning? If you don't, you can. 
because in Jesus Christ, we are a community. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son. We thank you for the opportunity we have to, to break the bread of life. We thank you for community that comes from knowing you as our Savior. We thank you, Lord, that even in spite of our inability because of our sin nature to respond, that you uh, came to us, that, you, that we are chosen in you, that we are in Christ, and because of that we come. We can come, and we can come freely. So my prayer is in the next few moments that you would prepare our hearts not only to uh, complete the word this morning, but also to to survey our hearts as we partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name I make this prayer. Amen. And so the invitation this morning, as it always is, is very, very simple. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, <clears throat> we can't save you. This church can't save you. But we can, with an open Bible, lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can leave here this morning knowing that you came to him the chief cornerstone, repented of your sins, called out to him, and in faith, he will save you, and he alone will save you. We're going to sing an invitation hymn, give you an opportunity to make your way out of the pew. We'll sing one verse, and we encourage you and uh, advise you, admonish you to do that this morning. As a child of God, perhaps you're here and the Lord's leading you into the fellowship of this church. We encourage you also to unite with us if you need to follow the Lord. Perhaps you know the Lord. You need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to do that this morning as well. As a child of God, no individuals. Yeah, we're individuals as God made us, but in a community, we bring all of our gifts together for the community. We'll see that this afternoon. I'm going to play a game. One person can't do it. There has to be a community. That's God's <coughs> design. That was his intent. 282, Brother Mike, would you stand and sing the first verse? It's the Lord's Prophet. Mm -hmm. 